We at the Complete Discography and the Babylon Project are horrified at and furious about the Supreme Court's recent decisions to strip the right to appropriate medical care from people with uteruses. We are putting some suggestions in the show notes about where to direct your time, money, and energy, and we also encourage you to find a local organization working to restore fundamental human rights and protect the people these rulings most harm. As a reminder, Sir Terry, in many of his works, codified his most ultimate evil as treating people like things. This clearly is an example of that. Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grab your trusty frying pan, hide the special sheep liniment, and join us on our journey through the We Free Men and the Complete Discography. Good evening. Uh, on this, the eve of the 25th of May, tonight we're recording the 30th Discworld book, The We Free Men, first published in 2003. And interestingly, I was in Scotland at the time. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting book because it is uh, another in the the second of the Discworld series that's classified as YA. And I'm really looking forward to getting to that with our guest, uh, but let's do our silly book titles first. Anna, do you want to lead us off? Yeah, sure. I'm Anna, and I'm currently busy outfitting a dollhouse for maximum fegal enjoyment. Oh, that sounds like trouble. I am Justin, and I am preparing for my hot toad summer. I am Aaron, also known as bigger than wee woolly, but smaller than medium-sized woolly woolly. I, I am Ursula, uh, but that is Miss Ursula. Thank you, or perhaps Mistress Ursula. Uh, and I am wearing a hat, although it is not pointy. Uh, and that voice you just heard is our guest tonight, uh, Ursula Vernon. Um, would you like to actually introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Ursula Vernon, a.k.a. T. Kingfisher. Uh, as Ursula Vernon, I wrote the Dragon Breath and Hamster Princess books for kids. And as T. Kingfisher, I've written a bunch of books for adults. I never know how to say that. If I say I wrote adult books, people start to assume things. <laughs> uh, very few of them are adult like that. Nettle and Bone is the most recent one I have out from Tor. And I've written fantasy and horror. The uh, kids' books tend to all be fantasy. I won't swear there isn't a little horror in some of them, because in my experience... Children love horror a lot more than adults think they do or wish they did. <laughs> and yeah, that's, uh, I've won a couple of awards. I've been doing this for a while and I'm happy to be on this podcast talking about one of the, the truly great writers of the last thousand years. And also Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking, which is the coolest oh, yes. idea. And I need to steal that for a D&D character at some point. <laughs> Yes, that one is S.T. Kingfisher, uh, although it is a uh, middle grade book, uh, more or less. <laughs> and it's about a uh, uh, girl wizard whose powers only work on bread, who has to defend the city from invasion using bread. Apropos for the um, 
for what happened in, during the pandemic. <laughs> that that was one of those cases where the book landed at the exact moment when everybody had just taken up making sourdough starters and really, really disliking the cops and not trusting authority figures. And I'm like, wow, I have this book. <laughs> and I I could wish the world had not been such that it landed so perfectly, but I'll take it if it had to be that way. <laughs> so, Anna, uh, do you want to quickly summarize the book for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the story this time follows one Tiffany Aiken, a very serious nine-year-old girl who lives on a farm in the Chalk, which is a land of rolling green hills, clear blue skies, standing stones, and other mysterious relics of ancient human civilization. While playing at the river, she encounters the fairy tale monster Jenny Greenteeth. A timely warning from a couple of six-inch-tall blue-tattooed men allows her to dodge the initial attack, and she dispatches the monster for good through clever use of uh, her brother, her toddler brother Wentworth as bait, and also a large cast-iron frying pan. Tiffany heads to the camp of itinerant teachers and finds someone who can give her some more information, the witched Perspicacia Tick. She learns that the little blue men are Pictsies, called the Knack-Mack Fiegel, and that she herself perhaps has a future as a witch. She has the first sight and second thoughts. And Miss Tick gives her her talking toad familiar to provide further advice. Back on the farm, Tiffany begins to interact with the Feagles, who believe she's their new hag, and expect her to take over the responsibilities of the late Granny Aching, a shepherd of legendary skill and Tiffany's grandmother. Things become more dire when the family discovers that Wentworth is missing, and the Feagles inform Tiffany that he was stolen by the Queen of the Fairies. In order to enlist their aid in rescuing her brother, Tiffany travels with the Feagles to their home in an ancient burial mound, where she meets their dying leader, the Kelda, and takes over as her temporary replacement. She and the Feagles then set out to raid Fairyland in search of Wentworth. Once inside the Queen's disconcertingly unreal domain, Tiffany and the Feagles must escape predatory dreams and defeat the terrifying Grimhounds, but manage to find not only Wentworth, but also Roland, the missing son of the Baron. They flee Fairyland through one of Tiffany's dreams, but Tiffany is separated from the Feagles and must face the Queen alone. But this confrontation isn't in the Queen's surreal dream dreamscapes, it's on the chalk, and Tiffany draws on the strength of the land and of her grandmother to defeat the Queen. In the aftermath, once Roland and Wentworth are returned home, Tiffany is visited by Miss Tick, Nanny Og, and Granny Weatherwax on broomsticks, who debrief Tiffany and agree to train her as a witch once she's a bit older. Roland, of course, gets credit for rescuing both Tiffany and Wentworth, but when he tries to apologize to Tiffany for this, she simply reminds him of her power and makes him promise to be a good ruler when it's his turn to take the title of Baron. Yeah, that's that's uh, the book. I tried I tried to keep it <laughs> to keep it tight there. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot in there that I that I love, and you're gonna have to read it yourself, listeners. Mandatory. I think I think we've said that. I think you said that for the last eight books. Yeah, <laughs> at least. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um you know we're we're finally hitting our stride too. Um, so Justin, as as our um, resident new reader, uh, what were your first thoughts? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's got that tightness that the amazing Maurice also had. That I I consumed it in a in a, like a couple sit downs in audiobook format over the weekend. Um, and yeah, I absolutely loved it. It was. I, the thing I was not prepared for was how like sad the book is like, and, and I don't mean that in like a bad way that it, it's, it's like it, 
it is a book that is very focused on grief and loss. And I really enjoyed that, like, because it's done well. Uh, Anna, Ursula, do you want what to, what are your sort of feelings on, on the, on reread? Uh, well, I just uh, reread it uh, last night because uh, <laughs> the podcast came up. And what strikes me is as someone who has, has navigated uh, writing children's books, I think Terry Pratchett could write this book and I don't want to say get away with it exactly, but there are a lot of elements that would have been difficult for, uh, well, me at least, to get by an editor. And, and this is just one author and one editor, so you know, don't, don't take that as a, a broad thing. But uh, Tiffany is, is very cold and says, you know, in the book that she is cold and she is logical. And like the queen even remarks that she's got a heart like a snowball. She uses her brother as bait at one point uh, very early on. And uh, I enjoyed the heck out of that. But if uh, when you're trying to sell a book, particularly with a female protagonist, uh, there is you get a lot of pushback if the uh, if the heroine is perceived as not uh, I don't want to say likable because I like Tiffany a lot, but uh, as there was always kind of a call. Can she be more sweet? She seems kind of mean, you know, and, uh, and Tiffany is mean in, in a couple of points and is just like, yep, I'm, I'm rude and I am mean and I am very cold and logical. And I admire that enormously, uh, partly because I don't think they would have let me do it. It feels like something Terry was wrestling with at this point because uh, Nightwatch also has that feeling of doing the job that's in front of you, and she she's she's very utilitarian, just kind of kind of like Vimes, and it's just sort of like I have a goal, and I will use things that I have around me to get to that goal. And the uh, the emphasis that uh, everyone is like, "Do you love your brother?" and she's like. I don't actually love my brother, but he's my brother, so it's my job to deal deal with this. Yeah, uh, I I I can hear the letter from my editor now. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, oh, um, well, I'm always thrilled when we have one of these that has chapters. It's it's always nice. <laughs> um, uh, we're we're just in a hot streak of books right now. Um, from Maurice to not night watch to we free men. Um, this is also a book that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more in this read than I have in the past, which I think is an artifact of reading it at different times in my life. I did read it when it first came out. Like I think I picked it up or somebody gave it to me like at release. Um, and I would have been around 15 at that point, which as a 15 year old, I did not quite, vibe with a nine-year-old protagonist particularly well and I I did enjoy it more in future reads but I think this time it clicked for me in a way it hasn't in the past quite possibly because of all of the you know musing on loss etc that like really felt very like grounded and real to me mm -hmm. and I will say also that uh, while we tend to use YA as a catch-all for uh, kid books uh, this was uh, very firmly I think middle grade mm. which is the uh, uh, what happens before YA mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. so like a 15 year old actually is probably not reading YA. The editors just pretend that they are. Uh, there's a, uh, a tendency. Uh, kids always read sort of aged up. They always want to read about kids older than them, not younger mm-hmm. than them usually. So uh, 15 year olds uh, might not be reading about 15 year olds. They might be, you know, over in the adult section, but uh, 12 year olds will absolutely be reading about 15 year olds. So those frequently tend to be the YA audience. And this uh, nine year old is, is firmly middle grade. And uh, he does a lot of stuff with language and using very large words and defining them uh, immediately. And so well, that is, that is really just, elegantly handled as uh, a vocabulary uh, in a uh, book that uh, for younger readers. It's fascinating though. And no spoilers for Justin, because you know, the, the entire Tiffany series is kind of an, an exploration of how big YA is because we actually don't, we're not letting Sophia read the the fourth Tiffany book yet because it's, it gets heavy. It's the one with the rough music. Is is that uh, Shepherd's Crown? No, or, I shall wear midnight. Uh, I shall wear midnight. Okay, yeah, yeah. I haven't read Shepherd's Crown. None of us has read Shepherd's Crown. It's uh, uh yeah. I won't even get into that. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, it's it, it, it. Speaking of meditations on grief and loss, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where th- this podcast is entirely an excuse to have a support group when I finally read it. Good call. Speaking of, though, I'm realizing that oh, we forgot to do the other thing that we like to do with uh, with guests. It, could you tell us a little bit about your first journey into Discworld? What was your first Discworld book? Do you remember? Oh, uh, no, I'm pretty sure it was uh, The Color of Magic. Uh, and it was, Lord, um, I was living in Minneapolis. I was probably 19 or 20, and we... Uh, would take the bus, uh, actually I was living in St. Paul, we'd take the bus over to Minneapolis to Dreamhaven Books, which had a storefront back then, and uh, they had the the UK editions in, because this was way back before you could get the, uh, before there were US editions, so uh, they had the the old school covers, and I uh, uh, picked one up at random and was like, okay, this is kind of cool. I mean, it, it's certainly more fun. Than, and I was, fantasy had not yet quite undergone the enormous sort of uh, blossoming. So uh, I, you know, uh, bought the first couple, like I, like I bought the first one, I read it, then I went and bought the second one. And then I was making a pilgrimage to Dreamhaven and pretty much buying each one next in sequence and until... Uh, uh, all of a sudden, they uh, uh, they started coming out at, uh, in U.S. covers, and I, I my most vivid memory is reading Small Gods and going, "Where were you when I was sixteen and needed you?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so fascinating. I think the thing that I've enjoyed beyond just reading all these books again is watching a writer develop over you know, 40 years of writing is so fascinating. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, he was always like, like good, but as it gets less slapstick and more sort of cleverly furious, it, uh, it, yeah, it's, He apparently started writing this book around the time of Carpe Jugulum and it was originally supposed to be actually Roland up in 
uh, Lanker. And apparently he completely re- reshuffled all of it because he was like, well, how am I going to keep the witches out of this? That's fair. Mm. One thing I did notice is that uh, this all uh, came out uh substantially after the Harry Potter books had landed. And at one point there is a reference to, you know, you'll, you'll go to a magical school yeah. and it, it feels yeah. like a very <laughs> deliberate uh, sort of nudge at uh, being a witch is not about going to schools. It's about yeah. doing the hard gritty work. Well, Terry has very strong opinions about wizards. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the other thing that, you know, I, I clocked from this reread is um, how much Tamlin there is in this book. Oh, yeah. Um, Definitely. You know, and also Child Roland, although Terry apparently disavows that in particular influence. Um, <laughs> then why did he name the child after that? <laughs> a good name. It's a good, it's a good solid barony <laughs> yeah. name, you know. No, yeah. I, I was noticing it particularly. There is a scene where uh, uh, Tiffany is holding the queen of the fairies who starts changing shape into various things. Yeah. And it's really downplayed in the text because Tiffany is just so over it at that point. <laughs> uh, but uh, that is absolutely, you know, Tamlin to, to a T. Mm-hmm. So should we talk a little bit about the, the, the main themes of the book? Uh, I think that we we highlighted this earlier on in the discussion, but there is you know there's a there's it feels really like a meditation on on memory and and loss. You know the the world losing its center is a a phrase that comes mm-hmm. up at one point, uh, which is interesting considering the book that we just read. Uh, but but then also you know, well no let's sorry let's talk about memory and loss a little bit before I blather on there's certainly a lot about grief and loss of her grandmother and dealing Mm -hmm. with uh her grandmother's death which again is a uh uh, a lot of children's books handle that badly you get the ones that are like written by a grief counselor that you give to a kid during a traumatic event very few that are like entertaining fiction that also happens to be about that It, it, it it is frequently avoided because I mean, it's it's heavy, and mm-hmm. you don't necessarily want to to throw that at things. And of course, the amazing thing about Pratchett is that he can do very light, hilarious wordplay and jokes and whatnot in a book that is primarily about the world has ended because my grandmother died. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that really caught caught me and like really sort like like the perfect things that like crystallize this sort of thing is when like the the one with the china shepherdess mm-hmm. is the is the memory that always sticks to the and how obsessed we she is with like that she she gave the wrong gift yeah and it was just like I, it was a real feeling that i don't think i've gotten much of anywhere else just because of just like how small it is but still so focused i I loved it and like i have you know i absolutely have like things that live in my head where you know i wish that i had said a thing or apologized to a thing you know for a thing etc to somebody who i can't now say the thing or apologize to anymore and like you know that that kind of just lives in your brain like the China Shepherdess does. Mm-hmm. 
yeah the regret is yeah, yeah a theme as well and overall like the the way that she's in text processing all of this feels very authentic to how her character deals with everything which is that you know grinding away in the back of her head those second thoughts uh while she's you know making the butter while she's dealing with a fairy incursion while she's doing all of these various things well and it's also uh, uh just in, in terms of craftsmanship a a good way to to do it without info dumping or having to start the whole book when she's you know seven years old or whatnot it, right. it but it's handled really elegantly mm-hmm and you know the 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 way that he dives into various sense memories too is feels mm-hmm. so thoroughly authentic and the you know, the the thing that i really like with the shepherdess too is that it in fact shows tiffany aging and mm-hmm. growing up because you know we have the very young tiffany who won the shepherdess and gave it and then like and at that point she thought it was a perfectly reasonable gift you know, it was something that was special to her and she gave it to somebody who somebody who was special to her. That makes sense, right? And then like you can see as Tiffany was growing up, she was like coming to the realization that maybe this was not good, but then didn't quite that didn't quite click to her in time. And now that we're a couple of years out from her grandmother's death, you know, she's it's it's really like she's really come to realize that, you know, this is something that she should have talked about. She developed theory of mind a couple of years too early. Um, <laughs> you know, re- realizing yeah. that other people have their own thoughts and desires and wants is something that kids come to in a sort of a slow process. I uh, I really liked how uh, she did make the observations that her grandmother was frequently very awkward. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that uh, she, she sort of observed that, you know, her, that, she wasn't necessarily great with kids or just with people in general. And that was, uh, that was nice as a, a, because, you know, there are lots of awkward adults out there and I don't know. And I'm sure kids notice because they are sharp that way. Yeah. She was granny. uh, Granny aching was much more comfortable tramping around the Hills uh, during a freeze, saving lambs. Well, I also really liked all the stuff with kind of environmental stewardship and what it means to be a good community leader. Mm-hmm. The latter a lot with Granny and how she handled things like the the Baron's dog um, and what it means to a community to have a leader like that, you know, leave the community and no longer be there because, you know, we have Mrs. Snapperly and the horrible things that happened to her. Mm-hmm. You know, And all the, all the like... You know, environmental stewardship of you know that you you put leather shoes on the horses before you take them out on the chalk mm-hmm. burying granny aching in a way where it leaves no trace etc yeah you know, i i really liked all of that without uh, uh spoiling anything much in the next book there is uh, actually a a scene where uh, he just utters the line that the uh, or the narration utters the line that the enemy of the chalk is trees. Mm. And uh, as a gardener who works in basically in a clearing in the woods and tears out tree seedlings all the damn time, I'm like, oh, man, you knew what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, there's all that new all that new research now. I think I actually saw you retweeted a couple months ago about how the, the focus on on foresting uh, for carbon capture ignores all of the native prairie grass plants that we oh have, yeah you know. yeah i i could do 20 minutes on that so we probably shouldn't <laughs> but uh yeah no prairies are huge carbon sinks and putting trees on them is uh is like chopping up uh, uh monet to draw stick figures on yeah um evil elves we have evil elves again yeah i soup i i'm i think we i think the thing that also that really works with this is that we've had it's been over half of the published books that we've had since Lords and Ladies. Mm-hmm. It's had a lot of time to sit around there. And cl- and so when it comes in, Terry comes in completely swinging on this. Mm-hmm. And it works so well for it. I love it. Yeah, I love, I yeah. love the portrayal of them as utterly alien. Mm-hmm. I love also the building on um, a lot of what he did in Hogfather with the Tooth Fairies domain. Mm the unsettling landscape that's only real when you look at it. It has a draw distance. Yeah. yeah. You're playing too much Elder Scrolls. <laughs> I really enjoy that he's kind of circled back to that that particular like phenomenon or or type of world. I, I liked the and, idea of the parasitic worlds yeah. on on another one. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. The drones are scary. I loved the drones. They're the drums. so scary. Awesome. I felt so bad for them. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not even from there. Yeah. yeah. They just got sucked up into this and they, they're just, they are, they're trying to vibe and dream and, you know, Queen's got to ruin it. And actually their, their world, weirdly enough, reminds me of a different Roland from the, uh, the Stephen King Dark Tower books. Oh yeah. With the, 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 the seashore mm-hmm. and the, the, yeah. And the and, crustaceans and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Weirdly, and this is an artifact of watching, currently watching Strange New Worlds, and also uh, this has caused me to go down a rabbit hole of rewatching Star Trek original series <laughs> again. And they also remind me of um, The Cage slash The Menagerie. Mm. Uh, the the Telosians. Yes, 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 yes. I, I feel like I feel like they've got some shared DNA with the drones. I uh, uh, speaking of aliens, I have always thought uh, whenever he gets around to describing the uh, the uh, elves uh, once the dram- glamour is dropped, is they're gray aliens. Mm. Yeah, they're they're yeah. like little like grayish monkey like things with huge eyes and a slit for a mouth. I'm like, no, that that's a gray alien. Yeah, that's a good call. I watched a lot of X-Files in the form of <laughs> So say we all. Different franchise. Sorry, crossing the streams. Oh no, different franchise again. Uh, one of the other things that I love about this book because he's, he's finally like, okay, I'm going to actually canonize witch stuff in, mm-hmm. you know, here's what I'm actually thinking about witches and how they actually work. And he's showing it, he's showing his work too, with Tiffany just sort of stumbling into this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the line that stuck with me from the very first time that I read the book was, you know, you go up to a high place and you open your eyes and you open your eyes again. And she spends the entire book trying to figure out that particular Cohen. We'll see a lot more of it in the next two books. Yeah. I also liked all of the stuff with kind of the role of 
fiction and stories and society um that that's something that we've touched on in a lot of Discworld books we've we've got it again here with the the musing on the fairy tales and how they you know people's thinking about you know old women with no teeth living in a cottage all alone is influenced by fairy tales etc you can fairly barely fit a loaf of bread in there how can you fit a child <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah there's also a real echo of uh, a hog father with the uh, humans have to be dreaming all the time because if they're too uh, if they're wide awake which is also an echo of vimes and how if he's completely sober uh you know it's it's his his brain starts to melt down and the uh, uh <laughs> but the hog father they humans have to be dreaming all the time because the the moment of being purely awake is not something that your brain can process so humans dream through everything and it's like the stories you know as as death says about uh, uh the sun coming up and whatnot mm-hmm. yeah for sure i also found it really funny that the way that Tiffany thinks about fairy tales is exactly how Susan thinks about fairy tales. Um, the the ecological vandalism with the beanstalk and everything. Um, eyes, eyes the size of soup plates. What what size are soup plates? <laughs> the kind of soup plates that are eight inches across. <laughs> She's great. Yeah. I yeah. The, gosh. Okay. I there there was Tiffany might be like. Like in the course of like one seven hour audiobook, might be one of my favorite Discworld protagonists already. That audiobook is That's spectacular. Reasonable. Stephen Briggs does such yeah. a good job. I there was an emo- like just to go off on the audiobook for a moment. There is an emotion that I have not felt in probably twenty years, probably longer than that, which is the desire to strangle a sibling. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a real genuine desire to just like inflict harm on, on, on somebody who is a sibling of mine. Um, and this, and Stephen Briggs Wentworth voice, ar- <laughs> like awoke that emotion. I'm like, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. He definitely has youngest child's uh, energy. Gosh. Uh, other themes or tropes we want to pull out okay. i mean I'm, I'm good with moving to the butt end okay or, yeah the, yeah this section which we uh, for like uh, for some mysterious reason lost to the past uh call the the moment where those pull quotes like the the boots theory and things like that we call them buttons um and so one of the ones that i pulled is the repeated phrase it didn't stop being magic just because you found out how it was done such a good line. What a quote. Uh, and a repeated theme, yes. Yeah. It might be like my new it might be my new outlook on like art in general. I mean, that's that's basically wrestling in a nutshell, isn't it? Right, yeah. My my smart mark over here. Yeah, well. <laughs> so when I when I don't when I don't write about fantasy, I just write about half naked men. <laughs> um, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's truly i like it's and the fact that like you know how it applies to the witches which i'm the witches are for the most part it's you know the magic isn't in the magic it's in the magic isn't doing the do showing your work as yeah yeah you know the, the whole we get that return to um you know you you don't do magic you do everything up to the magic 
Mm-hmm. Weirdly, I'm gonna tie I'm gonna tie this back to Star Trek again. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Uh, so, Aaron, you were saying the other day that one of your first experiences with Star Trek was actually the Reading Rainbow yep. episode where they went behind the yep. scenes, right? That's true. And you know, the the it didn't stop being magic just because you found out how it was done. Really vibes for me also with a lot of like it can be really fun to learn how things are done and how they're made and like Mm -hmm. that's its own kind of magic like you know watching star trek and being you know having suspension of disbelief and being in the narrative is fun Mm -hmm. and then thinking about like how did they do that they had a guy behind the door pulling on a rope so that the door would go shoop you know yeah and once you know Um, that you don't have to worry about it anymore you can just have a door that goes shoop right yeah that that you know i think i think that in the drive to make everything like seamless um and flawless like you know i think sometimes the magic is lost there mm-hmm. i am always the person who wants to know how the sleight of hand trick is done so uh, i i will be sitting there watching it and i'm not going wow he saw that lady nap i'm like okay you do the, is she like ducking down? Is there, there's gotta be a trap door in the stage. Is there black cloth behind the thing? I am always trying to reverse engineer all the magic tricks in my head. So, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Cause I mean that, that, that is an artistry in and of itself. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't yeah. like, there are plenty of magic tricks that I know how they're done and uh, it's still really impressive when it's done. Well, I'm like, yeah, damn, I knew what hand to watch and you still did it well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and like the thing that I thought about this is a heist movie. Because I mean just as just as like I mean like Ocean's Eleven, like you know, or, or you know, yeah, any of the Ocean's movies, you see it and then they and then you get to see how they really did it. And th- and knowing that it, it's like all those parts make it just even better. Knowing enough to to be even more impressed. Yeah. I rewatched Sneakers the other day, which probably dates me That's more than I film. would like. And it actually holds up really well, except for the bit where the villain is right about everything. Uh, but there is, there is a lengthy scene where, you know, they've done all these high tech gadget things. And then the, they're like, okay, well, the only way to get there, okay, there's one way to get past this door key, pad, uh, this keypad on the door. And like, okay, so and it's just, you, you, you cut to uh, Robert Redford going, uh huh, uh huh, mm, mm hmm. Mm-hmm. okay i'll try it and then he kicks the door down and it's it's like yes okay that is that that is totally effective on <laughs> what was your other what was your other button oh i i had several other buttons i'm <laughs> sorry okay. i went light because i knew other people were gonna be pulling things yeah so one of my favorites is if you trust in yourself and believe in your dreams and follow your star. You'll still get beaten by people who spent their time working hard and learning things and weren't so lazy. <laughs> that was that that is the one I would have pulled to. That is such yeah. a great line. It's such a beautiful inversion of all of the all of the uh you know chosen one uh middle grades protagonists. Or anything you can write in a swoopy font and put on a fridge magnet. <laughs> Or just how we think about genius in general. Right. The other one that I'll pull here is the 
is a quote from Granny Aching. Um, we are as gods to the beasts of the field, my jacket. We order the time of their birth and the time of their death. Between times, we have a duty. Yeah. Related to that one, the uh, the is the one that someone has to speak up for them as has no voices. Yes. Which is her talking about the uh, the animals as well. It's like, yes. And that's that is, that's straight yeah. from Granny Weatherwax too. Yes. Yeah. Which I think is one of those indicators that she is in fact a witch because she thinks that way. Uh, well, and also the, the, the bit where uh, this tick is like, you didn't say what can somebody do? You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. You said, what should I do? You know, mm-hmm. it's that, that taking ownership and doing the job that's in front of you. Tiffany did not consider the fact that she could refuse the call to action. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah if you're being a witch appears to be you don't get to reject the call to adventure unless it's a stupid call to adventure in which case you're like it is lambing season i dipshit i am not going off looking for a magic sword (laughs) the whole you know witches can't grow on chalk thing miss tick is stuck in sort of a trap of her own, own headology, really. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can, witches grow anywhere they're needed is, is the message that I get. Yeah. Going with our, going with our, is Vimes a witch, uh, sub theory. Say it. <laughs> yeah. An urban witch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that that's really an interesting thought of like, what kind of witch would grow in ink more pork? And the answer might be Vimes. Somebody who climbed out of the gutter. Oh, one of the interesting things for me with the like witches can't grow on chalk is that that's an entirely new piece of lore that has dropped in here like it's always been there. Like, obviously, witches can't grow on chalk. Obviously. But it's something that's entirely new. Uh, and it's something that like really stood out to me since we've read these, we've read through you know the first 30 in a air quotes, compressed right. amount of time. But, you know, then this pointed out that the other thing that grows in chalk is flint, which is the hardest stone there is. I'm going to jump back to what you just said about witches in Ankh-Morpork and say that uh, I actually think a witch in Ankh-Morpork would look like Vetinari. Ooh. Fascinating. I mean, take. Because there's... if you look at witches abroad, the whole thing was... Where are the witches? They're in charge. Hmm. And Vetinari is is cold and practical and logical and does what needs to be done and knows how to make things work and is uh, uh, not necessarily a good person, but uh, and no one likes him, but much like Weatherwax, he's, you know, the the man for the job who understands how the city works and how to keep it all running. So uh, he's sort of like the, uh, the, I feel like if, if you had a witch in charge who didn't go to the weird fairy godmother thing, like in witches abroad and stayed with practical rulership, you'd get veterinary. Also wears a lot of black. Mm. Yes. Um, (laughs) And he, and the way that he manipulates People in general, but particularly Vimes. Oh, yeah. He uses headology. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Is very granny. Oh, I love this. You could also... <laughs> um, I could also go with um, Rosie Palm. 
Yeah, maybe potentially the head of the the, the head of the seamstresses guild, but more less of the weather wax and more of the og. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to be one of the witches, I, I always would have much preferred to be Nanny Og because she's clearly having fun. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, I don't absolutely. know if Benadari is having fun. It's just this is what he does. With I his don't think Benadari can feel joy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but can Granny Weatherwax? Hmm. Good and point. they're both described as, you know, angular to the point of, of cutting the air around them. I love this. this. Great I love theory. this. I'm, I'm digging this theory. It's, it's, I, I'm also thinking of the scene in, um, have you guys done Jingo yet? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the one where, maybe it's not that one. Maybe it's uh, uh, not guards, guards, but men at arms, where uh, he's walking across the, that is walking across like a trapped, a set of traps to get to uh, uh, the Leonardo da Vinci yeah. version. And he like is saying, no, I won't step on this one. It's Tuesday. And then, uh, and, and the narrative observes that uh, if you were very suspicious, you would not trust the things he says out loud, you know, <laughs> when he thinks he's alone. And, and that struck me as a very witchy kind of thing. Yeah. Also, he gets that donkey down from that tower. Yeah. Yeah, you have to find the part that wants to go down. Yeah. <laughs> and Weatherwax, that, yeah, she can get a donkey down from a tower, too. This is a great theory. I'm, I love this. This is, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, no, he just, he just skipped is, Maiden and Mother and he went straight to Crone. All right. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> do, do we kind of want to call it additional? details that we loved <laughs> well yeah. let's let's spend a little time talking about our favorite blue boys the feagles uh, I, uh, I, I love the feagles i love me some feral i love me some feral uh whiskey drinking hordes yeah it's funny that in the whole in a book called we free men we have not yet mentioned the we free men like at <laughs> all <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I mean, the, the first thing that I wanted to start with is, like, these are very different feagles from Carpe Jugulum, it feels like. Uh, first oh, of all, yeah. they're terrified of lawyers. <laughs> Whereas in Carpe Jugulum, they, they have in, intense contracts that they make people sign. And that could be regional differences. That could be. Or yeah. clan differences or something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, in fact, it's uh, uh, I, probably in the next book where we find out that some clans can read and write just fine, and this one just happens to be particularly uh, uh, <laughs> proudly illiterate. The Their swords glow when lawyers are near might be <laughs> one of the lines that. that, like, that like one of the most, like, if you gave it to me in isolation like without context would probably still be the funniest thing I've ever read. Yeah. I also love the running gag of the Feagles being absolute unholy terrors to Ratbag. Yes. <laughs> Cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but then on a more serious note, the, the thing that I find broadly fascinating about them is their whole philosophy of how, they're in the afterlife, and when one of their one of their group dies, they're going back to the real world. This is fascinating. Yeah, that that is wild. I I I love how they are. Uh, uh, how it's kind of a paradise is wherever you are yeah. kind of thing. They're like they're just happy where they are. So of course this is heaven. yeah. 
I mean, I feel like anywhere you put uh, Fiegel that wasn't like a void featureless plane, he would probably think was awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, I love their like Robin Hood-ish, not quite, because they don't actually give anything away, <laughs> but they're certainly not going to steal from the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I really like that, that you know they, they rebelled against the queen because she was having them steal from people who they didn't want to steal from. Mm-hmm. I really like that of them. They're they're broadly speaking matrilinear, it seems like, although kind of bee-ish. They're kind of like yeah. bees, yeah. 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 Uh, did you did you love the Gonagal, Justin? <laughs> it was very funny. I I loved the Gonagal. Uh, I think he gets uh, uh, also may get more airplay in later books, but I just love them. And it's also it's interesting that he has a different accent. Than the rest yeah, of them. that was very funny. He has a he has a, a Robert Burns ish declina- declamation yeah. style as opposed to the sort of maybe Glaswegian. I think it's Pixies. Glaswegian. Yeah. Also, Pic- Pixies might be one of my favorite. Like, <laughs> just like this is the worst pun you could possibly make, but I uh, you you get away with this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and Justin, now you've finally seen pune or play on words. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a beautiful line that I still remember from one of the later books, which is a Gonagal could use words like swords. And <laughs> I love that one as a writer. Uh, but just the the uh, the tradition of, you know, warrior bards who can say things that, you know, just uh, reduce the enemy to shame. Yeah, weaponized weaponized bad poetry. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. Uh and then at the end when when Granny is like, you gave them a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and just the to- the toad lawyer in general. Mm-hmm. I oh, I love him. He, he's just okay. I mean I, I love Eddie like miserable put upon non human entity. <laughs> but you know, the I toads might be the most one of the some of the most miserable looking animals in general. So you know, just lovely and just being a very like depressed lawyer. Love this boy, but but then also like you know, speaking of horror in middle grades, that part where he's meditating on maybe I was never a t- maybe I was never actually a lawyer. Maybe the <laughs> maybe the witch cursed me to think that I once was a lawyer, and like that's awful. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and the music. I'm like, well, it would be a lot easier to convince a toad that they were once a person than to actually turn a person into a toad. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, where do you put the other 160 pounds of person? <laughs> Observation yeah. of mass gets you every time. Yeah. Well, and um, I really like the toad as a fun play on the in in this sort of like realm of middle grade books a lot of protagonists in at least at least when i was reading middle grade books more frequently uh had a some form of talking animal sidekick who were always my favorite characters in all of the books i have to add but uh yeah disney movies you always have the animal sidekick and whether or not they can talk it's the you know the princess has to have a animal sidekick it's just mm-hmm what happens it's a it's a right. fun tweak on the monomyth too because you know he, she has she has a a companion but then also like the the i guess the feagles broadly speaking play the role of the trickster mm-hmm. 
So, yeah. Uh, let's see. The <laughs> I, I wanted to go back to talking about Tiffany for a little bit now um, because the the footnote on how Tiffany had read lots of words in the dictionary but didn't know how to pronounce them. Well, that's a move. Feels oh, yeah. Reminiscent of that me. was just at me next time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, patronizing is a big word. Zoology is really quite short. <laughs> and, oh. You know. The, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. But also, like the traveling semi-feral tutors, I just always love <laughs> the, the whole the whole thing of like that'll be one carrot. <laughs> Uh, I, on on the subject of words and and wordplay, which he does a lot of, uh, the the moment uh, the, talking about how the moon is gibbous, and she would make a note that it was gibbous, so she she could look up and, and think, "Hi, <laughs> the moon is very gibbous today." And then the comments, "This may tell you more about Tiffany than she would want you to know." Yeah. I'm like, "Yes, that is that encapsulates a character very well." <laughs> Yeah, uh, but also it's sort of it's lampshaded a little bit because you know she talks about there being a susurrus, and then Miss Tick later on is like, "Was there a susurrus?" She was like, "Yes, yes, <laughs> somebody else knows this word." Yeah. And the uh, the sort of reverse onomatopoeia uh, about uh, gold, uh, the the, yeah. the lights. Uh, words yeah. that, uh, that sound like uh, a thing would if a thing made a noise, which is a theme he will return to later that I think he starts in this book is is just, yeah, I, I have never been able to think of, of some of those words without thinking of those passages again. <laughs> yeah. That's honestly, that was a brilliant passage. And also the glowing of the, uh, the frying pan hitting uh, Jenny Greenteeth. Yes. God, I just love, I just love the the using using uh Wentworth using Wentworth as bait. Yeah. <laughs> like, would I have done that with my sister? No, my sister would have done it with me though. <laughs> One of my favorite moments is the scene where it's right at the end where Tiffany calls down thunder and lightning to herd the storm. Yeah. Such a beautiful scene. Yeah. And that, I mean, that whole time where she's, it's that like, it's that trope of, you know, the first time you really use your powers, you, you can never quite recapture that, that same level again. You know, she's, she's talking, talking about feeling like taller than the hills and stuff. And she talks about knowing that she'll never um, have that level of power again, that it's not something that immortal as opposed to grasp but i i will say this handles it very differently because in a lot of uh media and what i'm sort of mentally latching onto for some reason is uh the flash saying i can never go that fast again is that you get the feeling that a lot of uh uh characters are sort of longing to recapture that Whereas Tiffany is like, oh, thank God, I'm never going to do that again, because that is way too much for any human to live with. You'd mm-hmm. need to, you know, put your head in the sack all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. So it's hard to talk about what particularly stood up well to the test of time since this book is only 19 years old. Um, but only. Yeah. Well, look, I'm. Aaron, Aaron, this book could vote. Uh-huh. I'm turning 40 this year. Don't remind me. 
I'm turning 45 in like five days. So uh, happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) I'll also call out another bit that was lovely Mm. that uh, Justin has here, but I'm going to steal from them, um, which is Tiffany when like everybody's trying to find Wentworth and what she does is she takes a paper bag and she puts candy in it and she shakes it like she's trying to find the damn cat. <laughs> so It's so funny. It's just because I'm just like, I was just like, I have done this so many times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and then also, Justin, you should keep an eye on the cheese thing because you may have a new favorite character in a book or two. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I, I really did like in the dream uh, with the food that suddenly cheese had always been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and as someone who could definitely be bought with cheese, like sweets don't do it for me. But if there was a cheese spread, I would be like, oh, this is hard. That whole scene had a really strong like labyrinth feeling to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. The, like, simultaneously hyper-real and, like, you know, also dream. There's also another moment where where Tiffany is very cold and calculating in in that scene where she uh, chops the head off the drone Uh that is looking like Roland. And he's like, but you could have killed me. And she's like, yes, but I explained it wouldn't. (laughs) And, like, neither she or the narrative really seemed to think twice about the fact she was like, yep, I'm just risking killing this dude on the fact I'm pretty sure I'm right. And uh, again, a it's not that the character again is unlikable because I love her, but a thing that uh, one does not necessarily, uh, adults frequently don't want to encourage children to think that way, let us say. <laughs> yeah. If this was an adult character, I would like, you know, you know, like there, like, I think like, you know, it, pro- it would be, some very specific tropes that it'd be playing into, I think, of what. But I mean, like for a kid, it's like, dang, this is stone cold. You explained your thought process, but Tiffany drops some bodies oh. in this book. Yeah, which I, I oh yeah, I'm all for. <laughs> yeah, or the uh, the the grim hounds when she's like, oh yeah, no, you don't want to jump with a mouthful of razors, yeah. so you just have to go to the the place where they're. Uh, to like reality and they just drop mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah they have burning eyes that's not something you want when you're you know in the real world yeah <laughs> no uh, uh, tiffany is very uh okay if i have to kill someone because they're in my way i am not going to agonize necessarily over it kind of uh yeah as an adult she'd be like you know, we, we'd expect the, the the assassin or the sniper character kind of thing. And uh, as a nine-year-old, it's, uh, I mean, she's fabulous. Yeah. It does explain some decisions my 11-year-old makes, though. <laughs> <laughs> this is entirely internally logical. You know, to the rest of us, no, but... <laughs> I mean, I... Uh, like I said, I'm nearly 45, and I still occasionally having find myself having to say, okay, the sequence of events was totally logical, and let me explain it. And, uh, yeah, uh, one of my editors for horror says that uh, the problem with my horror novels is that everything is extremely practical, 
and logical and follows naturally. It's just it follows to a really terrible place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the one th- the the thing that Anna brought up because uh, I'm gonna go around and steal this as well. Uh, <laughs> turn about a spare play. I mean, all all's fair here. Um, is Aaron? How does this? How do like you know? How how do you think this is aged for kids today? Uh, I mean, both of my kids love it. Uh, we listened to it in the car. I've, I read it to them uh, a while ago, and then we listened to it in the car when we were driving around the Southwest this this last summer. And, you know, they, they latch on to very different things. Um, you know, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. Uh, I say 10, she's 11, 11 as of a couple of days ago. Um, but Eloise, the younger one, loves the Feagles. Because uh, how could you not? And, you know, there's a lot of oh whaley 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 at the campsites, but you know, I think that for what we would gently call an advanced reader who reads books like they're candy, uh, I think it's a great book. You know, I think that that Tiffany. I don't know how a I can't remember how old Sir Terry was at this point, but like in his probably early fifties, year old man writes a prospective female character, especially a child, this well. Oh, yeah. No, he he absolutely nailed it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I've I've recommended it to parents with with uh, with similarly precocious readers. I don't know. I, I think that I think it's great. Honestly, it's one cool. I highly recommend to, to adults and kids. Good to know. Because adults should read it too. I, in full disclosure, I initially didn't read it. Like I, I read it, you know, a while ago. But like I initially didn't pick it up because I was like, well, you know, I'm not really interested in YA. Um, and I was wrong. And I'm glad that I picked it up and read it because it's really good. Maybe, maybe it's a good point to talk about. Like we've been talking a lot about Tiffany and her characterization and the ways in which it's unusual. So. Justin, you pointed out in the notes that you know, there's perhaps like okay, so this is I this is one of those things that I'm always hesitant to bring this up because this is something that I project onto a number of Discworld protagonists. Um, but that is that like there are definitely points in the book where there are things that like oh hey this feels like like behavior or thoughts that would. I don't know, I would say are autistic coded. And part of that might just be, you know, part of that is definitely, oh, hey, I'm going to project things onto protagonists who are very relatable. But also I think like, like especially in the parts with the queen where, where the conflict of Tiffany's rational thinking and second guessing herself, there's that sort of loop there. That feels very, like that just feels really real. So uh, a quasi funny story, I suppose. I have a book out at uh, uh, Tor that will be published in, I don't know, a couple of years because publishing schedules are weird. And uh, the the heroine is a, uh, uh, it's a retelling of the fairy tale Tatterhood. And uh, so the heroine spends, it, it follows the heroine growing up and, and she's a, a princess. She has a twin and she's like, the super practical one and the one who does not get all of the 
interactions that uh, that other people necessarily get. She wants to fight things. She doesn't want to, you know, sit around and be a princess. Mm-hmm. She's also asexual, so we got in a uh, a sensitivity reader. And the and, and bear in mind, I had written this and I had just had her ask all of the questions that I asked growing up because I was like, these are the obvious questions. You know, why do the adults know this? How am I supposed to know this if they don't tell me, et cetera, et cetera. And the sensitivity reader comes back and, is, and mentioned, says sort of offhand at one point, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a cliche now having an asexual character be autistic, but there's nothing you can do about it now, I realize. And I was like... What do you mean? Those are the normal questions a kid asks. Is it, wait a minute. This is awkward. Don't know quite what to do with that. All right, moving on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the uh, the measuring the, uh, like, okay, how big are eyes as big as yeah. soup plates? Yeah. Well, what size in soup plates? Why don't you just say how big they are? Uh, a lot of the, uh, the yeah, the, the kind of, rational you know i am observing things and this does not make sense and it is frustrating that it does not make sense because it should make sense if people were just being sensible but yeah this is all really interesting to me because um i uh i think one of the reasons that I've like never meshed super well with Tiffany is that she always felt and and I say this as somebody who is a like quite Tiffany like child like that I was the like serious child who read the dictionary and um wasn't afraid to say whatever to anybody um see also that that has stayed and I'm just willing to email people (laughs) and ask if they want to come on our podcast. Um, but she she always felt a little bit adult for her age, which is something that I felt like a bunch of the Discworld child protagonists have felt, like, like Esk um, or, or Mort, um, which granted were a very long time ago, <laughs> 30 years ago at this point. I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting, like, viewpoint on those sorts of like behaviors and character traits. Um, Cause I'd always read that as like, you know, in particular that, um, you know, she's not particularly interested in say play, um, et cetera. And like, even as a very serious child at nine, I still was super into play. I would have pegged her as older to like 12 myself probably, but I can't tell kids ages worth a damn. So I, I'm, you know, <laughs> Not to, not to discount anybody else's experiences. Um, I'm just going to gently push back a little bit because I think that it's it's as much a a factor of where she lives and in particular what her family does. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know the whole thing with the dollhouse. They talk about uh, and some of this was my wife and me discussing this earlier. Um, you know, they talk about how her older sisters also played with it and then, you know, discarded it to do other things. And, you know, she, she has responsibilities, you know, everybody has, except for Wentworth has things they have to get done. Um, yeah. and that's just a, that's just a fact of life as a, as an, you know, agrarian, uh, lifestyle on, on the chalk. So I'm not, 
I'm not saying that she isn't. I'm just presenting ideas that perhaps, you know, color it in a different light. I'm I'm not sure that she yeah. is that way because that's who she is so much as that's who she's become because of the facts of her life. I also am going to posit the, 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 the theory I have is that especially children like Tiffany think they are more serious than they than they are mm. and that they are unreliable narrators that's that's <laughs> that's also, also a good point Very fair uh, speaking of play though i will point out that the uh, uh at one point the queen says uh, he told uh, uh, roland is complaining the queen said you know telling me to skip and dance and and <laughs> sing yeah. sing and activities like what the hell, man? I shouldn't say that, but that's what comes across. And Will's like, yeah, I know. Nobody yeah. does that. You <laughs> think there was something wrong with them. Yeah. Uh, should we skip to down to the what else is important to talk about? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Because we, we started that. that section already. I think we might I have, think we might have covered, covered all the things yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although, I, I, you know, just sort of to, to loop back to the, the idea of setting it as far away from Lanker as he could because uh, because he didn't want the witches. He didn't want it to be a witch's book. He wanted it to be a Tiffany book. Real smart choice. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't he also living on uh, a, a basically on the chalk at that point, though, uh, or an equivalent? So, because I, I know he wrote about uh, something like that. So, it may have been the wanting to write too about the landscape mm. he was in. Yeah, yeah. It's um the the that whole section where the Granny and Nanny are, arrive. Um, I just love because Granny is so perfectly granny in that scene but then also she's like granny a king seems like somebody i would have liked to have met yeah mm -hmm. and compliments her boots i love i i loved the image of uh, uh granny aching and the kelda sitting around and drinking <laughs> and outside the, and smoking outside the the shepherd's yeah. wagon uh for like that that was fabulous it, it I, I liked the idea that uh, uh granny aching did have a a friend she could talk to mm -hmm. You know, even if she was awkward with other humans, this the the Nack McFeagal hag and she got along oh, well. God. Okay, yeah. going back to the Feagles again, the whole extended scene where they're talking uh, and awkwardly talking about how one of them has to marry Tiffany <laughs> and her increasing horror as she realizes that. Gosh. Uh, yeah, was, if you want to cuddle her, you'd have to leave a mark to see where you left off the next day. Yeah. Okay, so I would like to talk about three things in our round world references. First off, you know a fair amount about sheep, or at least by association. I, I have been forced to learn things about sheep, yes. Are they as stupid as they're made out to be in this book? Uh how can I phrase this? <laughs> sheep are very intelligent about things that matter to sheep. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, my, my shepherd buddy gets very angry at, uh, I believe there's a line in small gods where it says that sheep are stupid and need to be driven, but goats are intelligent and need to be led. And, and he gets very annoyed with that line <laughs> because as a shepherd, he's like, no sheep, you, I mean, sheep need to be herded, but they're, uh, uh, 
you, you don't necessarily drive them. But I feel like Pratchett's understanding of sheep evolved a lot between small gods in this book. <laughs> like, I think he actually came into contact with some sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can do remarkably boneheaded things, but it, uh, it really depends on the type of sheep, mm. weirdly enough. Uh, my tenant farmer friend, Shepard, uh, that's the name they go by, Shepard, and they are Shepard, so it, it's easier for everyone, keeps a very primitive breed of sheep called soes that are from, uh, they're basically from the Neolithic era. <laughs> they are one of the most primitive forms of sheep on earth, they're uh, of domestic sheep. They're only found on an island in the outer Hebrides oh, wow. where, like, they were dropped off, you know, by uh, Neolithic sheep herds more or less a rogue way and possibly. so yeah but and they're very short and like they're they're like knee-high sheep yeah <laughs> uh, like the ram maybe uh if he wanted to take you out he could take out your kneecaps really well <laughs> uh and they're very clever and very uh flighty hmm. i suppose for lack of a better term and you, you don't shear them they they shed their their wool oh. uh essentially so you just like kind of collect it uh interesting uh he also has a couple other sheep that are from different uh breeds and they are uh not as clever Hmm. and uh a couple of them are just like wow there's not a thought in your little head is there (laughs) but uh they (laughs) yeah they're not uh they're not smart by human standards, but they are very, uh, they're very, mostly they're good at being sheep. Uh, there are a couple varieties that are not good at being sheep. Like, uh, uh, I am told Merino sheep are just not good at being sheep at all. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it, it varies a lot. The, the using turpentine to dose the sheep, uh, while we don't do that anymore <laughs> at the time, that was that was very, uh, very much what you did. That is that is accurate so far as that goes, uh, because uh, sheep are prone to parasites and like a whole bunch of their problems can be traced back to parasites. And so turpentine, if you uh, uh, will kill the parasites and hopefully not the sheep so the line actually of granny achings that continue until there are no more scours or turpentine or sheep <laughs> is uh yeah that's accurate you you keep going until either the sheep is better or the sheep is dead <laughs> and there isn't uh, a lot of uh, middle ground that's well, amazing yes. uh and speaking of shepherding uh the uh, I looked and the the bit with shepherds being buried with a piece of raw wool because lambing comes first is actually 100% true. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, Shepherd has, has said they, they want that uh, when they go. And, uh, and also not to bury them at sea because something, something haunt me forever. But he was in the Navy. There's some bad men. Mm. The other thing that I really wanted to pull out with this is the Tiffany problem. Oh yes. Yeah, because you know it's it's sort of lampshaded with the way that the the feagles were like, oh yeah, you know it, it's it's this Gallic name, um, but it's a fascinating thing uh, that let's see, uh, Joe Walton uh, coined the term uh, because people always see Tiffany and think, oh, that's a very modern name, uh, but in fact, it dates back to the 12th century. Mm-hmm. 
so it, I, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm I couldn't find any specific evidence on this, but I'm kind of curious if he was if Terry was noodling with with that and chose that as as her name specifically because of that. It wouldn't surprise me. I know I've written uh, uh, fantasy novels and gotten emails from very nice people who were occasionally like, uh, I don't think this is period accurate. And sometimes I'm like, you're right. It's probably not. And sometimes I am like, no, this is a, a, uh, early Renaissance setting. And I will have, you know, that tobacco, that cigarettes were, you know, invented in Venice in 1530 (laughs) or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there is a lot of stuff that existed way before you expected to that feels anachronistic, but turns out not to be. And and there's a lot of things that are the reverse, where oh yeah, uh, like matches, because <laughs> um, the oh yeah, you know matches that you strike on a box, etc., are super modern. Mm-hmm. Except that there were there were uh, uh, fire starters that weren't quite matches in China. The way back before the invention of anything yeah. like that, but they're not quite the same thing. Right. And it's like, okay, so I do. T- yeah, the whole question of is it Tinder and Flint? Is it you know? Do you just fudge it and call it a fire starter and you know refuse to answer any questions? What do you do? <laughs> do you just say it's a fantasy novel, guys? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I. And someone what's going there, you know, the uh, the sheath on the sword wouldn't sound like metal when he drew it because there wouldn't be any metal in the, the scabbard. And I'm like, I will have, you know, the ring or the, the opening ring on a scabbard was metal all through uh, uh, Japan and Asia, because if you're drawing a katana, you don't want to cut the top of your scabbard off. So it does make a metallic noise. Or your, Damn it. Or your thumb off. Uh, well, the thumb, it can't really help with that. But yes, that that is also a concern. I took Eido for a while and it was always don't cut your thumb in half. Yeah, I, I took it for a while as well. And my knees just weren't up to it. My lower back um, went, but yes. Um, anything else we want to pull from the round world references? I just really love when the Fiegels, um use like phrases and concepts that are, they use some stuff that's like pretty anachronistic. The 1200 angry um, Yeah, one point. Yeah, it, my... it brings me joy. Yeah. Or one says it. Uh, uh, everything goes down the tubes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, I just, I just like the way that my brain has latched onto this is thinking that well, obviously this means that Fiegels have picked up on all of this stuff by raiding our world. Mm. There is a wonderful and subtle reference in a later book with the Fiegels, which I will now spoiler for you. <laughs> Go for it. But uh, the uh, they one of them says, I think it's Rob Anybody, says that, yeah, at one point they went into a world where uh, uh, everybody had a bunch of different arms, including one great big one just for opening, uh, for cracking walnuts. And they're the Modis from Moat in God's Eye. <laughs> Uh, which is a science uh, uh, Cornell and uh, Niven science fiction novel from back when I think, and I'm like, you did not just make a Moten God's Eye joke in this book written 40 years later. You did, <laughs> but it's the sort of obscure ass thing that you're only going to get if you happen to, you know, be a total geek who reads older science fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anything else we want to do before we get to our uh, ratings? Uh, no, I think I'm good. 
Uh, so, uh, Anna, how would you rate this book? I'm going to give it one top quality fleece ready to be spun into yarn. Justin? I will give it a horde of well-liquored pixies. Uh, Ursula? A five out of five packets of Jolly Sailor tobacco. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a full 512 some reel. Oh, yes. Nice, <laughs> nice. Okay, uh, now we get to our favorite little bit, which is Justin reads the summary for the... Ne- Justin reads the back of the book for the next book. All right. And I put it in the document. Yeah, because apparently, the, 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 apparently I'm not supposed to Google the next book, so okay. Lean into the mic even for this one. I'll, I'll give you that good. War has come to Discworld. Again. And to no one's great surprise, the conflict centers around the small, arrogantly fundamentalist duke of Borogravia, which has long prided itself on its unrelenting aggressiveness. A year ago, Polly Perks's brother marched off to battle, and Polly's willing to resort to drastic measures to find him. So she cuts off her hair, dons masculine garb, and, aided by a well-placed pair of socks, sets out to join this man's army. Since a nation in such dire need of cannon fodder can't afford to be too picky, Polly is eagerly welcomed into the fighting fold, along with a vampire, a troll, an Igor, a religious fanatic, and two uncommonly close friends. It would appear that Polly Ozer Perks isn't the only grunt with a secret, but duty calls, the battlefield beckons, and now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. I love this book. This regiment is so good. I can tell yeah. that there's going to be some feelings I'm going to have about this one. Okay. Oh, buddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You don't know the half of it. There is a, a, I think it ages pretty well, but I haven't reread it uh, in a while. But I, I yeah, it's, uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. Ursula, thank you so much. It was such a genuine honor and pleasure to have you on. Um, oh, it was delightful to be here. I am, I am thrilled to talk about Pratchett. This was lovely. Thank you. Where can folks find, do you want folks to find you on the internet? And if so, where? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, I mean, at your own risk, but uh, I live on Twitter at I am Ursula V, U-R-S-U-L-A-V, or you can find most of my books, except the one I haven't updated the website on yet, at Red Wombat Studio, or wherever fine books are sold. Uh yeah, you can find a lot of them in bookstores, like real books that they let me write and have not stopped me yet. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please, share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at a 2 pod, which is... A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com
Hi, Sophie. Hi. How are you doing? Good. I am. I am the the hamster princess writer, and uh, you dressed up as hamster princess. Yeah. Years ago, I I remember a photo. So I I had a question because did was Tiffany like an inspiration for you for Molly from Castle Hangnail? Because there there are like similarities in them that I noticed. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. Nobody's asked me that before. Very, very perceptive. Uh, yes, uh, definitely. I think she was the junior witch kind of kind of thing. Uh, I I wanted to to do some of that, but while Pratchett's witches are very, you know, serious and practical and and uh, help people, I, I wanted something that was a little bit sillier i think uh, a little more goofy so that uh, uh and honestly just a little more goth because i would have liked to wear all black and have lots of silver jewelry and uh, eye makeup but i couldn't actually figure out how to do the eye makeup when i was younger so uh uh it was definitely some of that although i think tiffany is is better at being a witch yeah but yes, that's an excellent question. So have you read any good books lately? I found a series from my school library. It's the Inkart Trilogy. and Oh, yeah, those yeah, are great. I'm like halfway through the last one. Oh, I haven't read the last one yet, so no spoilers. But yeah, um, no, those are awesome. Yeah, I like the idea of like a story within a story. Definitely. You just got to keep track of all the layers. Yeah. <laughs> Another, our, our fourth person has joined us, so possibly we will need to uh, uh, get to recording. But yeah, thank you for for chatting with me and asking your question. That was a good one. Thanks. And now I have to go get the last Inkheart book because I am behind.